questions and answers. Who are the Seventh-day Adventists? Are the essential doctrines of this church biblically sound? Or do they deviate in significant ways from biblical teaching? Many are confused about this church. Is it part of the mainstream Christian community or not? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucharan. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the arena of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. If you're unable to hear any part of this broadcast, all of our messages are available on our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Now, listen in as our host, Pat Zucran and Colleen Tinker discuss the teachings of the Seventh-day Adventist Church and hear the similarities, but also the differences between Adventist teachings and biblical Christianity. You're listening to Evidence and Answers, where we provide compelling evidence for faith and hope in Christ and biblical answers to the issues of today. Well, a common question is, who are the Seventh-day Adventists? What are their unique teachings and doctrines? Some believe they are another Christian denomination, while others consider them outside the camp of biblical Christianity. Well, to help us understand the Seventh-day Adventism and their teachings is Colleen Tinker. Colleen and her husband Richard lead Life Assurance Ministries. She serves as the editor of their magazine, Proclamation Magazine. So, Colleen, welcome to Evidence and Answers. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here with you. Well, Colleen, you know, before we get into the uh, teachings of the Seventh-day Adventists, tell us your story. How did you come to join the Seventh-day Adventist Church? I was born into it. I was a third-generation Adventist, and oddly as it might sound, that is sort of important inside of Adventism. The longer you're in, the more importance and embeddedness your family has. So, yes, I was born into it. Yes. Now, tell us what are some of the factors you know, that you began to look at that made you reconsider the organization? Well, there were always things that caused me cognitive dissonance, even as a child. My parents quietly, along with, you know, taught me that there were questions that they couldn't answer about the central doctrine of the investigative judgment. I always wondered if that were true, but I assumed that it probably could be because the prophetess had said it was true. So I held that in the back of my mind as a question I couldn't answer. As I got older, there were more things that caused me cognitive dissonance. I couldn't find good answers for things. But ultimately, when my husband and I moved into the home where we have lived for the past 25 years, as we were moving, our neighbors had a sign out in front that said Bible study every Wednesday night. And we thought, great, they're Christians. We thought we were Christians, too. As Adventists, we would have called ourselves Adventist Christians. But when the sign went down, like the study had ended, my husband asked the neighbors if they would be interested in having a study with us every week. They knew we were Adventists. It took them literally three months to give us an answer. But when we finally decided to study together, we met once a week on Tuesdays in our living room and started reading contextually, chapter by chapter, through books of the New Testament, something we had never done. We had been taught many proof texts. My husband and I were well steeped in Adventism, but we had never read contextually through the New Testament, and we began to see that it said things we didn't know it said. And actually, the proof text in context no longer said what we were taught they had said. That was the big thing that did the blow to our Adventism. By the time we had studied with our neighbors for two and a half years, we were convinced we would not be able to stay. 
you're not speaking necessarily as an outsider. You're speaking as someone that was in the church for decades and uh, grew yes. up in the church. So, yes. you know, before we get into the doctrines of the church, tell us about the history of the Seventh-day Adventist and especially its founder, Ellen G. White. Okay. The Adventist organization grew out of the Millerite movement in the mid-1800s. William Miller was a Baptist preacher. He devised a prophecy that said Jesus was coming back in 1844. A lot of people followed him. When Jesus didn't come back, there was a group of people who refused to admit their error. Many of the Millerites did admit they had been wrong and should not have date set, just as Jesus said not to, and they went back to their churches. But the small group of people would not admit they had been wrong. So they ultimately came up with a faith-saving device to say something else happened. They had just had the event wrong. The date was right. The event was wrong. That was the development of the core doctrine, the investigative judgment. Ellen White was not the sole founder. She was actually the wife of James White, and it was James and Joseph Bates with Ellen White who were the three co-founders. I believe that James was the brains behind the thing. He, was, he had an entrepreneurial spirit. He knew how to make money. And Ellen White and her vision were helpful to him in publishing and getting people to believe him. And he made money on her writing. So it was the three of them working together with others who also wanted to believe something had been right about 1844. Yes, and, and they believe that in 1844, something special happened in the heavenly realms. Tell us right. about this. It's a bit convoluted. I'll try to make it very simple. They believed that instead of coming to earth, Jesus entered the most holy place in the heavenly sanctuary on October 22 in 1844. What this actually means is they believed that Jesus did not complete the atonement on the cross, but that he had been essentially puttering around in the holy place in heaven, examining the records of everybody who had ever professed Christ. That's when he started putting his blood against, beside or over or covering the sins of those who had professed Christ was in 1844. So what they said was, In 1844, he went into the most holy place in the presence of the Father for the first time since his ascension. And that was when he began judging the righteous. He began going through the records of their sins, and anybody who had a sin that was unconfessed or forgotten, that sin was not forgiven. If they had confessed their sins, they were forgiven. The teaching of the investigative judgment is that Jesus' blood was like a temporal, a temporary, it wasn't a total forgiveness, it was a pardon, so that anybody who said they confessed their sins, Jesus allowed them to be considered having professed Christ, but they ultimately, if they hadn't confessed every single sin and overcome their sins, they would ultimately have those sins placed back on them, and they would have to die when he comes the second time. It's confusing, but it's the way Adventism has always believed under the surface, so that conditional atonement is the name of the game. They don't believe you can know you're saved. They believe you die without knowing if you're saved or not, because Jesus hasn't finished the investigative judgment until the time of trouble starts. So everybody's living in a state of probation and waiting to see if Jesus has forgiven them or not. Yes. Now tell us, how did they get this teaching there? 
That's a good question. That also is a little convoluted. Ellen White did have a vision called the Great Controversy Vision, a very long vision in which she confirmed all of this. But it's quite clear that she didn't originate the idea. Shortly after that Great Disappointment Day, there was a man named Hiram Edson who was one of the original Adventists. He was walking through a cornfield praying to know what they had missed, and he had a vision in the cornfield of Jesus going from the holy place into the most holy place. There is also evidence that there was another man named Crozier who had written out a document describing the supposed event. And there's evidence to suggest that Ellen White had seen that document, although none of the brethren can actually say for sure that she did, but she'd definitely been where Crozier was and where his writings were. So there were a couple of sources for this idea, but it became doctrine when Ellen White had the vision. Yes. Now, how did Ellen G. White end up rising to prominence here with the Seventh-day Adventists? Also a very good question, because she was 17 when she had her first vision, and she and her parents, who were Methodists, had followed William Miller. They ultimately were put out of the Methodist Church because when the prophecy failed to come true, they insisted on believing something was still important. So um, in the process of all of this, Ellen White met James White, and he was fascinated with her vision. She would have them in sometimes inconvenient and sometimes very convenient places and ways. And ultimately, he began, he was nine years older than she, nine or ten, he began taking her on his speaking tours because her visions would lend so much credibility to his ideas. So it became embarrassing to her mother and to other people that he was traveling with her. And so he ultimately married her. And he was, as I said, quite an entrepreneur quite visionary himself, not in a having visions kind of way, but in a, he came up with ideas. And he used her visions and published them and disseminated them to the believers. And she rose to prominence that way. He died in the late 1860s or 70s. He died quite a while before she did. And after he died, she had already developed so much notoriety that she sort of grabbed the reins. And because she was the one with the visions, she became an increasingly formidable force for the Adventists to deal with. And she sort of steered the ship until she died. She was not a president. She was not like one of the administrators, but she was the prophet, and they had to deal with her. Yes, she was considered an inspired prophet. And how were her writings and teachings viewed, especially along with the Bible? Well, they have always been officially considered authoritative. They will say, Adventists will say she is not equal with the Bible. They will call her, she called herself, the lesser light leading to the greater light, which is an interesting analogy if you think about it. You don't use a flashlight to find the sun, but they consider her authoritative, and she wrote commentary on the Bible. She explained the Bible in her writing. So that Adventists have always used her writings as the final word to understand Scripture. So even if they say she's not equal to the Bible, they use her as the final authority on Scripture. In addition, they say, and she says, <laughs> but the, the denomination still teaches that she was inspired. 
inspired exactly as the Bible writers were inspired. So they give her the same kind of authority, and they use that they use that explanation as a way of downplaying the inerrancy of Scripture. They will not say Scripture is inerrant. They will say it's infallible. And their argument for that is they know that Ellen White was, they believe Ellen White was inspired like the Bible writers. They know she had mistakes that they had to explain away and contextualize. So they will use that argument to explain away and contextualize Scripture as well. Yes, and hasn't the church reaffirmed her status as a prophet and that her writings are indeed authoritative? Yes, they have 28 fundamental beliefs. Number 18 is their fundamental belief on the spirit of prophecy. Until From 1980 until 2015, I believe, until maybe it was later, the last general conference, until then, they had called her writings the source it was a continuing and authoritative source of truth that was in their fundamental belief. The last con- general conference, which was about two years ago, they changed that to saying her writings have prophetic authority. I believe they did that because quite a bit had been made, quite a, quite a scene had been made among many former Adventists about calling her a source, which is, you know, original. It's like God himself to be the source. So they changed it. They got rid of the word source, but say she has prophetic authority is essentially the same thing because it's still claiming God spoke to her. Right. Now, so in 1844, they had, they created the doctrine called the investigative judgment where Jesus went into the Holy of Holies and began looking at the records of those who uh, profess Christ. But also along with that comes the shut door doctrine. Explain Mm -hmm. that to us. The shutdoor doctrine was short-lived. After 1844, Ellen White said that all of those Christian pastors who had failed to believe her revelation about the investigative judgment were in error and were leading their congregations to hell, essentially. So she still believed that Jesus was coming back. They just hadn't quite tweaked the date. So they developed belief, and this was led by Ellen White, that the door to salvation was closed that anybody who had failed to accept the revelation of the investigative judgment was lost, and Jesus was still going to come and save them. She had several more dates that were set. The denomination doesn't talk about these much, but she set several dates between 1844 and 1851. About the time of the early 1850s, the shut door kind of cracked open because members were beginning to marry And some of them were marrying people from other Christian churches that were not Adventists, because Adventism was very small. Well, those people then needed some way to be saved, so they had to somehow make an allowance for these Christians who were joining the group to become saved. They also began to have babies. And what are you going to do? Are your children going to be lost if Jesus hasn't yet come? So they gradually had to open the door to include the families. And by and by, that whole doctrine just got swept under the rug because it was no longer tenable and Jesus still hadn't come. Yes. Now, you know, there's a lot of confusion among Christians as to, you know, the Seventh-day Adventists. Are they part of, you know, biblical Christianity? Should they be considered outside? I think Dr. Walter Martin had them, you know, at the Uh appendix of his book. One of the Uh reasons is that there are a lot of theological doctrines that we are in agreement with Seventh-day Adventists. Uh, What are some of those doctrines? 
I want to say that there are several doctrines that appear to be in agreement, but when you understand the bottom line of Adventist worldview, they actually aren't. Publicly, Adventists affirm the Trinity. Publicly, Adventists affirm salvation by faith, salvation by grace through faith in Jesus. Publicly, they affirm that Jesus is eternal, almighty God, but on the bottom line, they actually don't believe these things. These are the ways they phrase these things that Christians don't understand. And the problem is that Adventism is heretical in its view of the nature of man, of sin, of salvation, and of Christ. So when you have a belief that man is only body plus breath with no immaterial spirit, that changes the nature of sin. It's no longer a biblical definition for sin, which is you're born spiritually dead with a spirit that's separated from God and must be born again. Within Adventism, being born a sinner just means you have inherited tendencies to sins from your parents. So it's a genetic thing. So how do you become saved? Well, you believe in Jesus, which was always a vague concept to me as an Adventist. But when you believe in Jesus, then he'll help you overcome your sin. So that ultimately salvation is about getting it right, keeping the law, overcoming your temptations, because Jesus is giving you supernatural power to be good. It's not about a new birth. It also changes their doctrine of of Jesus, because they taught us, Ellen White specifically said, that as an incarnate, you know, as Jesus the incarnate Son of God, he had no advantage the rest of us don't have. He was never able to say for sure whether he had a sin nature or not. She said both, that he didn't and that he did. But in practice, Adventists believe that Jesus' fleshly side inherited Mary's sinful gene pool. And when you understand that they don't believe humans have a spirit, you see that that makes it very complicated to see how he could not have actually had tendencies to sin, because sin comes in the gene pool. So Jesus, they say, is Michael the archangel. They say he could have failed. He could have sinned. He did not know he would rise from the tomb. Ellen White said he could not see through the portals of the tomb. They believe that when he was in the grave, he ceased to exist. They say that when he said to the thief on the cross, truly, I say to you today, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. They say the comma is in the wrong place. And that what he was really saying is, I say to you today, you will be with me. So they deny that he went to be with the Father when he died. So he ceased to exist in the tomb. And as an Adventist, I never heard the Colossians 1.17, I believe it is, text that says, in him all things hold together, which means his job in the Trinity is to hold all creation together. And that's forever, when he's in the womb, when he's in the tomb. That was a shocking realization for me after I left. Yes, so outwardly, you know, they declare, they hold to the orthodox doctrines or the biblical doctrines of the Trinity, salvation by faith through grace uh, Mm -hmm. alone. They publicly state they believe in the Bible as the only inspired word of God. 
But what you're right. saying is when you study their doctrines, they're saying something different here. And it appears they have a different mm -hmm. doctrine of Jesus uh, and a different mm -hmm. gospel and other unique teachings. So let's take a let's develop that a little bit more. In their understanding of Jesus, you said they, they believe he's Michael the Archangel. And yes. Also that he was not always God. He was made equal with God. And yeah. Uh, it sounds similar to, you know, uh, Jehovah Witness teachings as yes, well. So, yeah, tell us a little bit more about that and some of the scriptures they quote to support their doctrine here about Jesus. Okay. First of all, I want to address the being exalted to be God's son doctrine. That is a doctrine that actually is an Adventist doctrine. Ellen White did say that. If not explicitly, it is implicitly taught in their children's stories. It's something they don't articulate to the general membership until you kind of get deeply into the religion. It's embarrassing. They know it's not supportable in scripture. It comes only from Ellen. But they believe that in prehistory, before the creation of the world, God exalted Jesus to become his son. Now, it's, it's vague. She never actually says he was an angel, but she strongly implies it. And also, this exaltation of Jesus to be equal to be the to be equal with God, exalted to be His Son, that is what triggered what they call the Great Controversy, because it made Lucifer jealous, because Lucifer believed he should have received that honor instead. Well. That sort of jealousy can only occur if you're dealing with two players on the same equal playing field. It denies that Jesus was actually the creator of Lucifer. Lucifer knew his creator. He was not ever thinking he could be Jesus. But the teaching is that the great controversy, which is the central worldview framework for Adventism, began in prehistory when God exalted Jesus and Lucifer became jealous. Okay, as far as Michael the Archangel, that is also a doctrine that is very explicitly Adventist. It's also one they don't tell everybody. So until you study Adventism deeply, you might miss it. But they use the text in Jude, where Satan was contending with Michael the Archangel for the body of Moses. And <laughs> this, is, this is a complicated thing, but it, it's very real in Adventism, they believe that Satan contending with Michael, they believe that Michael was Jesus because, they say, Moses appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration, which means he had to have been resurrected. So by that fact, they claim that Michael resurrected Jesus, and it proves that Michael won the battle with Satan over the body of Moses. Because in an Adventist framework, you can't have Moses appearing if he hasn't been resurrected because they don't believe humans have a spirit that goes to be with the Lord. They believe that spirit is just merely breath, like in your lungs. So they don't see how Moses could even show up if he hadn't been resurrected. So they extrapolate that way, and they say that Michael is Jesus. Never mind the fact that Jude 9 says that Michael actually said to Satan, I will not level a singing rebuke. The Lord rebuked you. And Jesus rebuked Satan directly when he was on earth. Yes, and so that would 
not make Jesus the eternal God. It seems like there was a point where he exactly. was not. And uh, it goes exactly. against yeah, John 1. You know, yes. in the beginning was the Word. Yes. He had already existed from eternity past. And he is not no. a creation. It says all things were made through him. He is the creator, as you're saying. Right. Now, there's two things about that that I just wanted to say. Today, Adventism will say he is eternal. But they will also continue to teach this fact I just explained to you behind the scenes. But they will say, oh, it was so far back we don't even remember it. He's, he's eternal. And the other thing that's important to remember is that, the, that James White, Joseph Bates, and most of the founders of Adventism were anti-Trinitarian and or Aryan or semi-Aryan. We've run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed Pat's show today. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or perhaps hold an apologetics conference, give him a call. That number locally in Hawaii is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org, and you may do so right there on the homepage. You'll find we have a wide variety of resources available to you, everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. You'll also find Pat's books there. So be sure to share our website with those around you. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran. 